we have this platform, another platform called the Conversational Cloud. And mm -hmm. what we realized early on is that AI has been in the hands of technologists, data scientists, engineers. But if you talk about conversational experiences between a consumer and its brand, the people who have those conversations right now are contact center agents. Those are the people every day they're having millions and millions of conversations with people. So we said, we want to build a tool set that enables those people to be empowered to develop the automations, deploy the automations, own the automations. They'll actually upskill themselves from contact center agents, which is a very low pay job, to conversational designers, bot managers. And so we took the approach of building our platform to have kind of a secret weapon, which is take the people who are having those conversations, get them involved in AI, and you'll scale AI at a very high rate. So that, that's how we kind of do it. We call it the tango, human machine working together. Hey everyone, welcome to Brains Behind AI, the show where we meet the innovators, entrepreneurs, and the real brains behind some of the most successful AI startups. We ask them about their journey from coming up with the idea to finding the product market fit. And from their experience, draw a set of principles that we can take away to ours. This is your host, Ari. Thank you for spending time with us. And now, let the show begin. Hello and welcome to another episode of Brains Behind AI. I am Ari Yukobi. I have with me my co-host Natalie Thomas, and we are super excited about today's episode. We are stoked to have one of the most influential people in conversational AI joining us today, and we're glad that he's here on our platform talking to us. So Natalie, without further ado, let's introduce Rob to the audience. Rob Lacasio is the founder and CEO of LivePerson, a conversational AI cloud provider that connects brands and consumers. They have made over a billion brand-to-consumer conversations possible, with consumers to ask questions and make purchases in everyday messaging channels, all enabled by LivePerson's conversational cloud. Rob has grown LivePerson to about 1,200 employees, serving 18,000 clients worldwide, including some of the biggest brands in the world, like HSBC, Delta Airlines, and T-Mobile. Rob is also the founder of Feeding NYC, which has packed up and delivered over 80,000 Thanksgiving meals to families in need since it was founded after 9-11. Rob was born and raised in New York and graduated from Loyola University, Maryland. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Hey, Rob, before we dive into live person, I want to take a minute to learn about your personal background. We realized that you have never worked for anyone ever. Even back in the day, I think when you graduated from college right after you started your first company, and I was looking at the timeline and it wasn't cool to be an entrepreneur back then. So talk to us about your personal journey, personal experience, and what, what triggered you to go out and start a company right out of college? I would say it probably wasn't cool to be a tech entrepreneur because there were no tech entrepreneurs back, you know, not that many. <laughs> I mean, they were the big ones like Bill Gates and Larry Ellison and those are the guys that I, but I, I graduated actually English literature and business out of Loyola. And then uh, I did work for about six months. And I was fired from my job uh, it was during the recession. After that, I said, uh, I'll never work for anybody again. And I come from a line of entrepreneurs. So my grandfather's, my dad, my sister, everyone's like had these small companies. So I've always heard the stories of building a company. I kind of grew up in it. 
And so once I got out of college and I lost that first job, I started thinking about something that I wanted to do. And I just so happened to come across the concept of like an interactive kiosk, like touchscreen kiosk and digital video. And I saw digital video back in 1991, which there was no digital video on computers at that point, but I'd seen it until I built some technology that the government was using. And I just so happened to find my way to it. That led me on a path to staying in technology and, and becoming a technology leader and an entrepreneur. And, you know, I've gone through pretty much, I think, everything that an entrepreneur goes through. You know, I've lost a lot. I failed a lot. It's been a hard journey over 20-something years. But, you know, in the end, it's uh, quite thrilling to be an entrepreneur. And I often say, I, I guess, somewhere about 10 years ago, I, I felt that my purpose in life was to inspire other entrepreneurs to take the journey and realize that the journey is not a rags to riches journey. The, rich, the, the journey is not Facebook. The true journey is a journey, a life journey, and a journey that goes on beyond five years and 10 years. It's a, it's a commitment to, to really build a business. Thank you, Rob. That was very interesting. And now I wanted to ask, what was the biggest idea that triggered your interest in launching Live Person? And how did that brand evolve over the course of the last 20 years into really what it is today? Yeah. So, you know, my first company went under, so it went under in 1995. I moved to New York. I didn't have enough money to have an apartment and an office and I chose an office. And I had about 400 square feet and I slept on the couch. And then there was no uh, shower at where in the loft space I was uh, subleasing. So I had to go and get a health club membership shower. So that's how we got started at Live Person. But originally I was building websites because this is 95. And in about 97, I started to realize, you know, where's the people in the website? It's a store. And how do you have conversations with people in the store digitally? And you couldn't do it back then. You had to pick up the phone. And back then you had a dial-up modem. So you'd have to like hang up, pick up the phone, call someone or send an email and never be heard again. And I said, I wonder if we could chat. And so I invented chatting on web chat. In 97, I filed the first patents in 98. And then I got my first round of financing in uh, 99. So my vision was that commerce is powered by conversations. And that you need to have that in the converse, the commerce experience, and that's was the original vision behind Live Person. That's excellent. So you've been at it for about twenty plus years now, right? And technology has 25, evolved. Twenty-five, yeah. Yeah, technology has evolved. There's a lot that has evolved since then. So I'm curious how you sort of have gone and taken your company through those transitions from where we were with the dial-up back then to where we are now. It's interesting if you have the privilege to run a company for so long, and I've been 20 years running a public company, change happens every day, every hour in our lives. But what happens is that you'll find, in, at least I found in business, every five years, you're faced with some crossroad. And you either decide to move forward or stand still. And so there were a number of crossroads that happened along the way. One of the biggest ones that just happened over like seven years ago was that I realized that web chat was never going to get me to the vision of commerce being powered by digital conversations. And what I found, even our best customer, about 10% of the volume of conversations were chat and then 90% was still on voice calls. 
I realized like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wasting my time. I'm never going to get there, you know? And so what I, what happened at the same time was that we started to use messaging, SMS, Facebook messenger, WhatsApp, all these messenger platforms are taking off. And I realized, Hey, consumer behavior is moving towards asynchronous messaging, mobile messaging. Why don't we build, you know, a platform to connect to those messaging front ends and then let's see what happens if we're aligned to consumer behavior. Because about 80% of the time, we're using our mobile device for messaging. That's, that's our most number one app on our devices. Mm-hmm. So I realized, you know, let's try to build a platform. We launched that platform four years ago. It was called Live Engage. Let's call Live Engage. Now, moving forward, how are you helping to transform online and in-store experiences for major retailers? The name of the company is Live Person. This is an AI show, so there's got to be some connection to that. I did 24 months ago, about two years two, two years ago, I realized if you're going to scale conversations, you've got to have automation running and you've got to use AI and machine learning. We, we capture, we have over a billion conversations in storage from some of the largest brands in the world, banks, telcos, retailers. And because of that data set, we're able to then use machine learning and, and AI to build conversations that can automate that are we call obviously bots. I hate, I hate that word, but you know, they're bot driven conversations. So today about 80% of our conversations, which is now close to 70, 80 million a month on our platform globally have some sort of form of automation in them. So automation plays a big part into conversational commerce. And then when we look at conversational commerce, now retail is very big because it's been dislocated. And so we're doing things right now uh, for instance, one of the largest home improvement companies in the United States, retailers, we're doing virtualization of the sales force in their, inside the store. So when you walk in, there's a store in New York, we're doing a test-in, all the products have QR codes next to them, and you take out your phone and hit a QR code, and you're, you're conversing with an automation, with a bot, talking about grills. There's a, grill called, there's a bot called Grillmaster, and you're talking to the grill. So it's solving a big problem because social distancing is very hard to do in stores, especially with sales associates. But now you can walk in and you can just go about looking at a product and asking questions to an automation. So I think the retail area, although banks and telco has always been very big for us, insurance is big. The retail area now, because it's been totally turned upside down, is becoming a big part of the conversational commerce experience. Now that we're talking about AI, Can you talk to us about how you're leveraging AI in the conversations your brands and customers are having with each other? Yeah, so we have this platform, another platform called the Conversational Cloud. And Mm -hmm. what we realized early on is that AI has been in the hands of technologists, data scientists, engineers. But if you're talking about conversational experiences between a consumer and its brand, the people who have those conversations right now are contact center agents. Those are the people every day that are having millions and millions of conversations with people. So we said, we want to build a tool set that enables those people to be empowered to develop the automations, deploy the automations, own the automations. They'll actually upskill themselves from contact center agents, which is a very low paying job, to conversational designers, bot managers. And so we took the approach of building our platform to have kind of a secret weapon, which is... Take the people who are having those conversations, get them involved in AI, and you'll scale AI at a very high rate. So that, that's how we kind of do it. We call it the tango, human-machine working together. 
So in which customer categories are you seeing the most traction with AI right now? And why do you think that is? And do you think this traction will really keep going and expand even post the pandemic? Yeah, you know, we went up 40% between March and April in traffic volume. So, so what happened was the contact centers got shut down because of social distancing. And unfortunately, a lot of the agents, and I, I, it was about 50%, now it's about 30 to 40%, never made it back online. Because if they're in India or the Philippines, a lot of times they don't have connectivity in their homes to be able to, to, to take a phone call and then get to a backend system. I've always wanted to get rid of phone calls. I don't believe phone calls are, you know, the way to be doing customer conversations in 2020. So I was fine with it all going away. So what happened was there was a mad rush to fill in the lack of the agents taking conversations with automations. So we saw this massive rush, which is continuing today. And the contact center has been broken. It's been shattered. You know, it's about 15 million people around the world were in these physical locations sitting two feet away from each other. And it's a factory. It's a terrible environment, Mm -hmm. by the way. Even the best are factories. People there with headsets, and they get fed a widget of a human conversation, a customer coming in off off of an IVR, this technology that says press one, press two, and get lost. And when you Mm -hmm. press one, you get routed, and then they have someone show up screaming at them, and they're all sitting next to each other. Well, that's gone. Now they're in their homes. So now they're in their homes with their kids doing stuff and they're taking phone calls, which is about as pleasant as a, I don't know, kind of an examination, but it's just not a pleasant experience. Although everyone's trying to make it out like it's wonderful, it's not. So the best thing we can do is get these people to to move forward. They're not going back to contact centers, to move forward and be part of the experience of creating conversations. So banks, like banks and telcos, we saw a massive volume. We're seeing massive volume insurance travel. We saw we have like Delta Airlines and we have like seven or eight air, big airlines. Massive spikes at the beginning, kind of, you know, people were canceling. Yeah. Then it came down. Now they're going back. People are starting to travel again. So, so I, it's not going to go back because what we're seeing now is consumer behavior change. They're using this stuff and they love it. And they know, wow, I don't have to be on hold so I can get to an automation and I can get things done immediately. I love this. So, so I, I think this is here to stay. And, and our growth, you can see we grew, we grew our revenues 29% in Q2, mm-hmm. which is a you know, massive growth up from 17% in Q1 because of the amount of volume that we're in demand we're seeing in our business today. Yeah, no, that's amazing, right? And I can relate to it. I dread dialing and waiting on phone and getting routed between parties and rather <laughs> just chat and be done with it. You mentioned earnings, right? And I was, as I was going through it, I realized that you had the best quarter in the history of your company, and that's absolutely amazing. Congratulations! Can you, you. highlight what's driving some of that? Yeah, so a couple of things. You know, I've been through three major macro events in the history of our country and now the world. One was our country, which was nine eleven. So we went public on April seventh, two thousand. And then, you know, by 2001, the internet was imploding. And then we, I was in New York with my team, and then we got hit with 9-11. And we had to manage through that fear. You know, there was a real fear there for your life, obviously, which, which is very correlated to what happened during, which is happening now during COVID. The second one, obviously, was the financial crisis. And each time, 
we, we've done quite well. We survived the dot-com. We survived what happened to, during New York. And we just have tended to, during these time, focus. And we, we look, and I, I told my team at the beginning, these are always times of opportunity. The dislocation, the macro dislocation, the cha- massive change like that creates opportunities. Or if you look at the wrong way, you think it's going to terribly impact your business. I remember at the beginning, some people were like, oh my God, sales are going to stop. Everything's going to stop. And I said, no, no, there's going to be a change. And I believe we're in the right side of it. So when the contact centers got shut down, we could see that it was the change was coming to us. And then we've continued forward, but it's been hard. You know, it's like managing through these things where it's people's lives. And we, we had an employee die on us. So we had a 23-year-old die right at the beginning of COVID from the disease. And he had no pre-existing conditions. He went to the hospital four days later, he was dead. And I got a call uh, one afternoon about one o'clock. And I said, we've lost this employee. And it was a real shocker because somebody that young, he was, he was an engineer, data scientist in Seattle. And then I had to talk to his mother and father who were in China. He had no family here. His only family is mother and father in China. So at about 7 or 8 a.m. in the morning, we dialed him. And uh, we told him that their son had died. And this was the only son of this family. There was a daughter. And to listen, you know, the mother and the father, we had a translator. You know, the mother was just devastated. And I could, you know, the you know, you got to be there for people. And I've often, I've said during these times, you lead with empathy, you know, during these macro environments, you have to lead with empathy. And so we then, you know, also had to talk to the group that he worked in. And then we had a memorial service. We handled the memorial service for his family and then also his body because they can't get here. So, you know, there was no expectation that we would be managing this. And, you know, once again, when I went through the dot-com implosion, there's a lot that happened back then. And I said, there's no, you don't learn this in college. There's no handbook to managing through these crises. You just got to lead with empathy. And if you lead with empathy, you tend to make it through. And, and then the rest kind of works. Business will follow. But the first thing you have to be is very concerned about your employees. They are what matters most uh, mm-hmm. in these conditions, in these times, you know, and you're responsible for them in many cases, you know, parts, many parts of the life. I have responsibility for, we have responsibility as a company for their safety. That is impressive, Rob. While we're on COVID-19, one thing I'm realizing is that this pandemic has awakened the world to need of conversational AI in healthcare and more than ever. I can't take my two-year-old to doctor's office, but given the advancements in AI, I know I can envision the world where conversational AI to most extent, if not all of it, can replace the primary care and the family doctor's office. I want to understand what are your thoughts on conversational AI in healthcare? Yeah, you know, we we have a bunch of insurance companies, healthcare companies, so we're we're working with them. I ultimately think the way it's going to play out is you have to have your own AI. And this is what I believe, and, and we're we're putting something in the market in a few months, uh, not around healthcare yet, but around some other verticals where I think you've got to own ultimately there's got to be your own AI that's yours and that you trust and that knows you 
and gets to learn you over time by your intents. So the intents you're putting in the system, it gets to know you. And I, I think that's, that's where we have to go with healthcare because as we know, healthcare is a very personal thing. My body's different than yours and, and my, my environment is different than yours. And I think it's not a fantasy. It's not some like thing. Oh my God, we're going to, it's true. We can, we can build things that will allow something to understand you and then, then make diagnoses, recommend things for you. I don't think this is so far away on, on basic stuff. Obviously, there's things then that you've got to route to a human doctor. But there are things, and I, I think Google is the worst intent system for medical advice on earth. It's, it's the, if you put anything in around, like if I said my hair is a little shiny and near my ear and you said cancer, it would say, oh, potentially that's cancer. Like if you ever notice everything on the internet, it's like related to something horrible. Like my, 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 you know, you've heard my, my back itches. You've got some weird disease. There's a, there's a neck itching disease that can kill you. I mean, these are, you, I didn't even know this. Every now and then I go, what would I want to put itchy neck? It's like, oh, you could have psoriasis or then 10,000 things that could kill you. And it's terrible. So mm-hmm. you need, we need a better way to, this is where Google conversational AI is about personal, personalizing a conversational experience because unlike Google, Google is, it takes in a question takes an, an intent and then gives you a menu of stuff because it can't ask you a question back. And what makes conversational AI so powerful is I can put something in and the machine can say, let me ask you another question to clarify. And you clarify. Let me ask you another one and it clarifies. That back and forth, that conversation then allows for, I can then understand what you may have. And then I can diagnose you, but not, not Google search where it's one shot and you get the world of possibilities of how you could die. One thing I noticed is, I, I'm sure you saw it too, World Health Organization. They launched a very super simple version of a chatbot. It was all rules-based. I don't think there was any AI there that asked you a series of questions to see if you have COVID-19, if you need to go to a doctor, and what is the nearest place near you where you can go to get tested and if there's a need for that. And I went through it just as an exercise to see what they have built. And given the fact that there was no AI and it was just rules-based engine with a bunch of series of questions, I thought it was super beneficial to people and thinking about it globally, it was, I think, a great thing to do. And so I can't even imagine the possibilities that conversational AI can have once implemented in healthcare. Yeah. And then obviously there's a lot, I mean, I think if you, if we looked at this specific problem with COVID and how AI could be used, I mean, from contact tracing to symptoms to, I mean, there's, there's a lot of under that as, as you get a data set, once you get the data set of how people are asking for these, how they're having these conversations around symptoms or exposure to COVID, there's a lot more you can do with it, you know, than, than what you said, it's pretty much rule-based today. I mean, it's a simple set of questions to ask you, do you have a fever? You know, do you have a cough? Do you have a sore throat? Have you been exposed? Are you a certain age? So they are, they are going through that like 10 question thing. You're right. It can be more powerful than that. Now, taking it back to live person, how do you see your conversational cloud disrupting consumer experience? The navigating of e-commerce was 15% of commerce or 17% of commerce pre-COVID. Now it's like 27%. So there's been a huge jump. And then anyone who's involved with that will also increase like we've increased our, our company, the demand for our services. It's still small. And so I think our greatest impact is coming up, which if I can't go to a store, 
what is a new way in which I can have a conversation and buy a product or buy a service? And I think that's really, we're going to be we're forced into this now, even buying a car. We have 8,000 car dealerships. So we do have automations running on selling cars. There's still a lot of humans involved with that process. But I think there, because of the crisis, our platform is in more demand to change the game because what I'm seeing is a lot of the companies where there was rules and regulations and we got to have a human there, it got blown up. And they're like, we just got to yeah. have these conversations. We don't, even though a human can't be there, because there's always regulation, especially banking, there's a lot of regulations around why a human has to be done. I was talking to one of the largest banks, one of our customers in the US two days ago. And the guy said to me, I don't see any reason to have a human being taking a phone call. Makes no sense to me. The only thing, the reason we have to do it, and we have to put out an 800 number today, is because we're regulated. And the regulators say, people, consumers have to be able to call you to ask questions. Mm-hmm. Because that's kind of an old thought. Like, and now with COVID, you can't call somebody because they're in their home. It's not as easy to do. So we now have permission to replace those 800 numbers with messaging front ends and automations. And so as long as we do a good job with them. So it's really allowing the, everyone says, you know, what I've heard, you know, don't let a good crisis go to waste. The enterprises are using this. They're using our platform to understand the intents of their business, build the automations, implement them, and then scale them. And that's really mm-hmm. what they're doing with the conversational cloud. Yeah, and I yeah. saw what you guys did with um, Chipotle, the little the pepper, yeah. um, and David. <laughs> I love that. And the David's bridal. bridal. Yeah, yeah, David's bridal. I mean, I mean, we got people. You know, David's bridal. People didn't want to come in, and, but now they they have people are still getting married. So how do they have a conversation mm-hmm. with an automation to talk to them, schedule them to get addressed, delivered, things like this? And Chipotle, same thing. You know. People don't want to go in and go, let me have the uh, the meat, the chicken, stand two feet away from six other people. Like, they don't want that. So they go in, they talk to Pepper, they configure their uh, their burrito, and they pick it up at the door. Now, Chipotle's got a pretty decent app, but the problem is a lot of people don't want to download apps. And so we deliver this through all the messaging front ends, through iMessage, through SMS, through Facebook Messenger, through WhatsApp. So you don't have to do anything. You just go in, you converse with Pepper, but you don't have to download an app, start it up, go into it. People just want the convenience of boom, and then go ahead and configure it, you know, the way you want. Yeah, I get Chipotle twice a week at least, and you have made it super easy for me. I, so thank you for doing that. No, no you have made Chipotle possible for us. Thank you. So, so speaking of sort of where we are seeing this transformation, right, and, and things moving to conversation, and conversational AI, what advice do you have for industry leaders that are listening to this right now that want to bring AI, that want to bring conversational AI to their company? How can they accelerate? What can they do, given your experience working with large Fortune 500 companies and even the small guys? I think the people who do it really well and accelerate is they bring together the care and the technology folks, the IT folks together. And, and, there's, and then there's an overarching vision where I find it very difficult working with the big enterprises when it sits in a pocket. It may be a technology project and they force it on care. It may be in customer care and sales and they don't want to have IT involved. And what we find in the end, there's so much activity around AI in the enterprise. Like every corner, someone's fooling with dialogue flow or, you know, Lewis or something or our stuff. And that, those are the people we're playing with. We work with them, we compete with them, but that's the group. Obviously, IBM Watson. But I think as a leader, 
you got to set a vision for how conversational commerce and the consumer experience is going to be. Then from there, you bring those two those teams together and you set them on a path, and then you work with a platform provider like us, where we can we provide expertise and then the technology, but it's unified and we'll move very quickly. If we don't have access to backends, that's where you have lousy bots. When you're trying to get something done, the bot's like, I can't help you. Call now, 1-800. That's because there's a backend system that's not available that you have to go talk to a human to access a backend system. This is what I've come to the conclusion is humans and contact centers are only needed to facilitate the touching of a backend system that does not have APIs available for a machine. And I just don't buy it anymore, even though I'm, I'm a name and company's live person that talking to another human makes things warm and fuzzy. It's not where people are anymore. Especially younger people don't want to talk to anybody. So you've got to get the backend systems exposed so that the conversations can be very rich and then bring the care folks together to design the conversations and implement them, those care reps, and then set them on a course to fulfill intent by intent by intent. Start with bill pay. If you're a banking company, that's like 30% of intent usually your bill pay. You know, then work your way down. And, and that's how we get a lot of momentum in scaling the conversational commerce experience. How far do you think the world is from hitting that point where it's more normalized and it's part of the business? If I look at our customers and average out how much automation is being used, you know, in the in the conversations today, or what percentage of conversations, even voice conversations that have been moved over, we're about 20%. Some of our customers have gotten to 60, 70%, like the best. And some are going to 80%. They'll get there by year end. But if I average it out, it's probably about 20% of conversations have automations in them that are end-to-end today. Mm-hmm. And it's, so it's not a lot. You have 56 billion conversations done by voice conversations a year to contact centers around the world. 56 billion. $1.2 trillion is spent on one in, is spent on calling a customer you know, center, calling a, a, a care rep by voice. The largest brands in the world, like uh, the big telcos and banks, they spend over a billion dollars a year handling phone calls. And I know most of you, like me, would think they spend nothing on it. You would think they spend zero, but they spend like a billion dollars a year handling a phone call. It's old technology. It's broken. It's still out there. And you can see that it still needs to be transformed. And that's what's happening now. Now, do you think e-commerce is making a switch over to C-commerce, especially in the near future? There's big bets going on. So I, the conversational commerce space, although most people don't probably know about it, but if you look at Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg about two years ago put out his manifesto and it was around, mm-hmm. it was a lot around messaging and what he wants to do with the messaging platforms. And he wants to collapse them down and they want to put commerce through that. Obviously, Amazon has Alexa. Google has Google Home and Assistant. Apple has Siri and, Google, and Apple Business Chat. So everyone's put their, their hat in the ring. You have WeChat over in Asia and China. You got Kakao Talk. You got Line. I mean, all of them have commerce running inside them. So the race started and there's no winner yet. We're, we are also in that race. We're coming about it from the brand side. We didn't build a consumer brand yet, but we were bringing the brands and empowering them. The other guys have consumer brands and they have front end messaging applications or voice applications like Alexa. This all converged somewhere. And I think in the next five to 10 years, you'll see massive amounts of e-commerce being assumed by C-commerce. That's the game we're playing in. And we're not the only ones playing in it. There's 
you know, many other people are, are up there. All the big tech companies are in there today doing it too, start betting on that. Yeah, no, that's amazing. So what advice do you have for future entrepreneurs, aspiring entrepreneurs that want to build an AI company like yours, given your lessons learned along the way? The biggest mistake I see, like we saw a tremendous amount of bot companies a couple of years ago just come out of nowhere and they were getting funded and most of them are not doing very well. They remain small companies. First, playing in the enterprise is really hard and everybody wants to go there. It's really hard. I mean, we're able to do it because we're at a certain scale. So, you know, we're 12, 1,300 people, got 10,000 customers doing over 350 million in revenues this year. We've done, we've worked in this space for over 20 years. And I see a lot of them go into the enterprise and it's slow for them. And you have to be able to do certain things like security and all that. And I just think you're better off trying to build something in the consumer space. My recommendation, it, it seems easier to build a AI platform and sell it to a, a company to empower them to do something with it, with their consumers. It is very hard to do. And very few small companies with even a lot of money have really done well with it so far. So I would recommend come up with a, an automation that helps me solve consumer use case, travel, you know, help me book my flights better. Whatever it is, I would focus on that side and go for that. It's harder because you got to build a consumer brand, but it'll be easier versus going after the enterprise, which is a, you know, you've got Google, you've got Microsoft, you've got us, you got other companies out there, Salesforce, you got to, it's just hard to compete in that space. That is great advice indeed. And I know you've been at this for 25 plus years. In last 25 years, you've seen fair share of ups and downs, whether economic or other. I'm wondering if looking back, is there anything you would do differently knowing what you know now? That's a good question. I probably would have gone, I tried 10 years ago to sort of work towards a consumer offering and I pulled back from it. And I think it would have given me you know, we would have been way ahead of where we are today because I ultimately believe the winner is going to be B2B2C and there'll be a consumer front end. And I was trying to do is actually aggregate all of our customers into a single website where you could go and chat with them all. And, I, and then I, built, I bought an expert business to integrate experts so you could chat with an expert about tech support and all that. And I wanted to bring that up. I tried over like two years and then I couldn't get there. And so I, if I could go back, I'd probably do that a little differently. I would have stayed with it. I look at it this way. I just, I've never looked back. I've never looked back. I just never look back and think there could have been a different path. I always look forward and say the path I was given, I was given by somebody and I'm just doing the best I can with executing on it. Like I, I believe there's something myself that's involved with this, with the work I do, because I can tell you there were many times where I was facing the end, like the company going under and we made it. And, you know, it was, it was a lot of praying to the higher power of like, I just got to believe there's something beyond me and I have to let go. And I, I, you know, I hate to sound like a spiritualist here, but if you're being an entrepreneur is a lot of spirituality because you're creating things that don't exist. Entrepreneurs have your power of creativity. So think about it, you envision something in your head. You don't even know why it happened. It just happened. And then you go, I got, I'm consumed to get that done. And then you organize a bunch of people around it. And then you give your heart and soul to it until you're, you're done with your mission. 
so what I believe is I never really look back and figure out what would I do differently. I just look forward and say, what can I do to change my trajectory forward? And what can I take by being open to understanding what's the bigger purpose here? What's the bigger purpose of building a company, being an entrepreneur? Mm-hmm. That, that is yeah. a priceless advice. What I want to ask is, you touched on it, right? The entrepreneurial journey is a bit of a roller coaster where you have your days where you think you can conquer the world and then you have your days where you feel you have disappointed everyone who believed in you. How did you get through? And I think that would be super valuable to our aspiring entrepreneurs audience. What got you through the disappointing days where the days that where things were down? And as an entrepreneur, how did you get through those days? I'll tell you a story. So there's a story I'll, I'll tell you about. So when I lost my first company, my first company went out of the kiosk company. And I moved to New York with, I had like $5,000 in my, my bank account. And I got this little office and slept on a couch. And I was really down in the dumps. And I was very young. I was 27 years old. And I didn't really know what happened. Except I knew deep down, I didn't make the right decisions for whatever it was. And, and I ended up with this psychologist, Frank Morio in New York. And a friend recommended me to this guy. I met with Frank. I'm 27 years old. I lost my company. I don't have any money. I had put 50 grand on credit cards. I lost my credit cards, my credit rating, like everything was kind of gone. And I'm now sleeping on a couch in New York City. And I'm showering at a health club. And I feel like a total loser. And I'm cycling being a loser in my head. That's all I'm doing all day. I'm waking up thinking I'm a loser. I didn't do this. What did I do wrong? You know, you're cycling. It's a bad place to be. Very bad place to be as a person. And Frank, I remember listening to my stories about my life and my childhood and my building of the business. And this went on for about, you know, I met him a couple of days, like twice a week. So two weeks in, he didn't charge me because I was broke. On, this, on the, like four sessions in, he goes, I got it. You don't have to tell me anymore. I got everything I need. I said, wow, this is going to be great. So I sat there on the couch, couldn't wait for him to tell me. And he goes, you're fucked. That's what he said. Wow. He said, you're fucked. Wow. He said, you're fucked. I remember, I'm laughing at it now, but I remember like, man, my heart sunk. I was like, I'm at the end of the road. This guy's telling me, I'm really, I'm starting to use those words. That's what, that's what, that was clinical judgment of where I was in life. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm going to tell you something. You were born with a set of glasses, as in somebody put glasses on you, but you don't know those glasses they're making the world blurry. And what's happened is as things are happening to you, you are not seeing the world clearly in a way to serve you to get to your dream. Because I told them I want to go public. I want to go public since I was 15 years old. I read a book in the library. I still have it. And, and it was about going public. I said, that's the ultimate in building a company is being a public company, running a public company. And he said, you have this vision, but your glasses and the way you perceive the world is all wrong. So you constantly make wrong decisions. Luckily, you're young, and what I'm going to help you do is take those glasses off, and we're going to get another set on you that's going to make the world clear so that when you meet people and you have to make decisions, you'll make things that will serve you. So that the part of the entrepreneur is when you're failing, and I remember I, had, I went back to Frank. He, I was with him for about two years. He let me go, and one day I went public. I called him up. I hadn't talked to him in about a year or so. He said, I knew you were going to go public. Congratulations. And then I hadn't talked to him for a while. Then I had another downtime. I picked up the phone, spent a little time with them. Um, and now we're just good friends. But he said to me, when you hit the low points, you have to listen. 
because that is where you're going to learn. When you're at the top of your game, you don't listen to anybody. You know, when you're at the bottom of your game, it's where you get your learnings. Don't look at it as failure, but look at it as a place that's a gift. And some people medicate, you know, he's talking about some people self-medicate at the bottom. You know, they, they get yes. on antidepressants, they drink. I don't know, you know, people have all ways to relieve that stress because that's a very horrible time, especially if you're broke. You know, I might said, he said, you just got to learn how to live with it there, live with it there. And if you can live there, you're going to learn a lot. So I guess part of my thing is I tell people, when you get to the bottom, don't freak out. We've all gone through it a number of times and listen. And that's a place where I also try to meet more people. I try to be open-minded. I just lose my ego. And, and, I, and that, that's a place to learn. So think of it as a gift. So it's, I'm kind of weird like that because when I hit a bottom, I'm like, shit, this is great. Now I get to grow mm-hmm. as a human. And that's kind of weird because most of the when they hit the bottom, like they're losing. I think, oh my God, this is awesome. Like I'm going to learn. And something's bigger. Like I've been given this because I'm going after something bigger and I had to fail here to get to that mm-hmm. place. And so that, that's what people have to realize. You're not alone. You're not a loser. You're not a failure unless you quit. If you mm-hmm. quit at the bottom, you're a failure. And you should never quit at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Get through it and then quit after. Never quit at the bottom. Never do that. Wow, very valuable indeed. And this definitely hit a personal chord with me. I mean, I teach wellness to corporate companies and mindfulness is such a huge part of my life. So when you talk about surrendering and letting go, I wanted to ask, so when you've had all these moments of I need to let go, I need to surrender, is that when you started to see a shift in your life and a shift in your business? And is that when things started going up for you? When you started practicing these techniques and really living by your mindfulness beliefs. You have to let go now. And in about 10, it's about, no, it's now 12 years ago. I, mm-hmm. I ended up going to, a, going to India to an ashram. Mm-hmm. And I, I went there to learn how to meditate. But what I learned about there is that your inner voice, which I always thought was like, I think this is an important thing, at least for me, is that your inner voice I remember this, I'll go back to when I went to the ashram and, and I, it's funny when I arrived at the ashram, I go to the ashram, it's in Pondicherry. Uh, Sri Aurobindo is this ashram. He's been dead for many years here. Him and this other woman who ran it. But you go to the info, there's one guy there. and I go, look, I'm here to learn how to meditate. And the guy's like, we can't teach you how to meditate, but here's a pamphlet. Don't talk to anybody. You got to take the journey on your own. And what I learned when I was there was that the purpose and the voice inside, and there was a, in this little pamphlet was a story, this Hindu story about that at one time we were all gods, but there was a set of us that uh, weren't too good and they were banished down to earth. And the gods were saying, well, we got to hide the God power in these humans. And so one God says to the other, well, where should we hide it? And the other one says, we'll hide it in the hardest place for them to find. And the other one says, well, where's that? And he says, from within. Mm-hmm. So. If you think about that concept, inside of us is everything we need to know about ourselves, our journey, and our future. And that gut, that voice we hear, and that's what meditation does, it it clears out the other voices, the voices from your family, the voices from society. And if you can tap into that voice, and what's kept me calm now when I hit the bottom is I tap into the voice and I hear the voice tell me, it's okay. It's okay. And I believe in that voice. I, I let go to that voice and think it's telling me it's okay. Or sometimes it would tell me go in this direction. 
or tell me something. So when I, I got that stress, I would just calm myself and, and meditate, just get rid of the, the, the active noise, mm-hmm. the active conversations and get deep inside and hear what inside of me is telling me I should do. And that, that's kept me pretty happy and calm through mm-hmm. hard times. So, you know, it's a blessing. Is this something that's part of now your company culture? We haven't made it like, okay, everyone's got to meditate and we do, but obviously mindfulness mm-hmm. is, is, I say in vogue, it's so much more in, in everyone's mind because I think people are just finding it, finding it a way to deal with the stresses that they're dealing with. And the stresses have gotten much worse over time yeah. because we get a lot more information now instantly and we're bombarded with all the rights and wrongs of our lives and all the things we do or don't have either. We're constantly in a state of want. You know, we see in social media, everyone's having a fabulous time, yeah. but it's like, like, why can't I be doing something fabulous? But I think ultimately mindfulness, and if you can tap into your inner voice as an entrepreneur, it'll set you straight. And you know, I, I, when I was younger, unfortunately, and this is part of when you're younger, if I go back to the question about what would I do differently, especially when I went public, there was a lot of active voices. And I just, I sometimes got overwhelmed by them. And you start to doubt yourself and you doubt your own internal voice telling you you should do this. And like I said, somewhere I just learned, maybe it's getting older, maybe it's what I, the work I did in India and I continue to do. Somewhere I, I realized you got to just follow what's inside. And there's always people, people telling you you're wrong. Today, my stock's at an all-time high, and I look like a hero. Go back seven years ago when the stock's at an all-time low, and people are thinking I'm a total, I made terrible mistakes about building a new platform and going after conversational commerce. And why was I doing that? I don't live my life on whether the stock price is up or down or this. I got to live by what I believe I was put on earth to do. And as long as I can do that, and that's for all of you as entrepreneurs, you have to just do what you have been put on earth to do. The worst thing you can do and Frank Morio, if you look him up, he's got a book out there, the guy I worked with. He's, the opening chapter starts with a woman who's dying, and she's like 50-something years old. Her name's Connie. And he opens the book with he, – he, he also uh, he, uh, helps people who are at the, at the end of their life. So he also mm-hmm. is a therapist for people like that. And she came to him, and she said – she has so many regrets. She never got married because her mother didn't like the man she loved. She still lived with her mother. And here she is. She's about to die. And for a couple of months, Frank took her through a process to, to at least own her death. And when she died, she left a letter for him and said, these were the happiest days of my life. And he writes that if you get to the end of your life and the happiest day of your life is controlling your death, you, you didn't do it right. You don't want to get to the end of your life without knowing you did everything you were supposed to do on earth. And, and you got, that would give you happiness. So, so I think you got to live like that as an entrepreneur, as a human. You know? I didn't realize that was going to get absolutely amazing towards the end. So Rob, thank you. Every minute of this interview was so valuable and so informational. And I'm so glad we got a little deeper and we got to know the person behind the company. Thank you for taking the time. I know you're a busy guy and I really, truly, genuinely appreciate you being with us and and showering us with the knowledge and wisdom. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here today. If you like what you heard and are interested in more, visit us online at brainsbehind.ai and sign up for my monthly AI startup tracker. That's where I cut through the noise and bring you AI startups that are making tangible progress. Till next time, 
go out, be the brains behind AI.